One particularly ignominious solution to the Fermi paradox is that humans simply have no idea how to look for alien civilizations. This could be due to misconceptions as to what evidence of alien civilizations would actually look like. We tended in the past to envision Kardashev Type III galaxy-spanning empires full of Dyson spheres and Shkedov thrusters moving entire stars around. But to do that requires a lot of energy. Indeed, Kardashev's scale is based on how much energy a civilization can harness. Trouble is, it may actually be a lot more complicated than that. It could be that doing these sorts of megascale projects and galactic colonization may neither be desirable to an advanced civilization or worth it. Instead, alien civilizations might be far more subtle, leaving very little detectable evidence of themselves. In recent years, this has led to the formulation of potential technosignatures we might detect that would indicate the presence of a civilization, but are now only just barely detectable with the instruments we have. This includes things like industrial gases and an atmosphere that do not occur in nature, such as CFCs, which could indicate a civilization is polluting its atmosphere, or, alternatively, terraforming a world. This is only just becoming a practical method of SETI, but another is also now becoming practical. The idea that artifacts or probes of alien civilizations could be lurking within our own solar system. My guest envisions ways we might look for such things as we venture off this planet and explore the universe. You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. John on today's program is theoretical physicist Dr. Avi Loeb, the Frank B. Burr Junior Professor of Science at Harvard University. Dr. Loeb has authored over 600 papers, he is the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and also serves on the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. In 2012, Time magazine selected Loeb as one of the 25 most influential people in space. And we're back with Dr. Avi Loeb. Now, Doctor, the idea is eventually to go to the Alpha Centauri system. And within that system is the star that's closest to our own star system, as far as we know, Proxima Centauri. Now, recently, this has been found to have, probably have a planet, Proxima B. Would this be a good target to, for a breakthrough star shot? Yeah, interestingly, Proxima B is in the habitable zone of Proxima Centauri, the star, um, the star itself has 12% or so of the mass of the sun. So it's a dwarf star. It's much fainter than the sun. And the habitable zone is much closer to it. It's about 20 times closer than the Earth-Sun separation. Interestingly, at that uh, distance, Proxima b, the planet, uh, is tidally locked. It faces the star with the same side at all times. 
So it has a permanent day side and a permanent night side. And the average temperature is, uh, in principle, uh, appropriate for having liquid water on its surface. So it could be habitable, although we don't know for sure. My daughter says that if we ever travel there, uh, she would like to have a home, a house in the permanent night side where she would sleep. And then her vacation home, the second house, in the permanent sunset strip that separates the day side from the night side where she would have all of her vacations because it's quite wonderful to have a permanent sunset uh, all day long and uh, we we simply don't know if if it may have life on it and we would like to know so one way to find out is fly a camera next to it and uh, image the surface to see if it's uh, green, whether it has vegetation, if it's blue, whether it has oceans, or if it's yellow, just desert-like. So you would have this this permanent twilight area on the planet, presuming it's tidally locked to uh, Proxima Centauri. So you would have this sort of zone, like an eyeball world, a zone of habitability on it where liquid water would possibly be. That's true. And uh, I should say also that this uh, raises the possibility of uh, detecting a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization because you would, uh, it's possible to predict uh, as the planet moves around the star, one side of it is illuminated, just like the moon is illuminated by the sun. One side is illuminated, the other is not. And as it moves around the star, uh, you see different amounts of light reflected off the surface of the planet. And uh, even without resolving the planet, you can monitor how its brightness changes. Now, if there is a civilization on it, obviously they would prefer to illuminate the dark side uh, during the night. And uh, they will redistribute the energy that is impinging on the permanent day side. They would distribute it to the night side. They would also distribute the heat because the permanent day side is hot and the permanent night side is very cold. And so uh, these effects of redistribution of heat and light can in principle be detected just by monitoring uh, the radiation coming off the planet. And uh, this is another way to search for artificial effects of, of other civilizations. One can search for pollution of atmospheres. One can search for photovoltaic cells that cover, for example, the permanent day side. And one can, can search for redistribution of light and heat across the surface of a planet. So essentially, if, if they were if, if a civilization developed on a tidally locked world, it could com basically take control of its planet and mitigate what that causes and make more of the planet habitable, right? Exactly, exactly. And we can detect a signature of that without even resolving the planet because we would see that the light curve of the planet as it moves around the star is different from what we expect based on one side being illuminated and the other side being dark. So you would, and, and I suppose there's also biosignatures there because if you had, um, if you detected, say, the vegetative red edge, you would know that there's a biosphere at least on this planet or other close by red dwarf based systems like um, Trappist One. Now, that's right. Yes. So there's there's multiple ways. You can either detect a biosphere or you can detect a civilization if it's there. There are several ways to do that. Right. Now, one problem with it, though, is that Proxima Centauri is a somewhat active star, it seems, as far as flares. What implications does that have on habitability for this planet? Well, there is the fundamental question of why do we find ourselves next to a star like the Sun? The Sun is a rare star. The most abundant type of stars are dwarf stars, like uh, Proxima Centauri, which is uh, 12 
percent of the mass of the sun or trappist one which is eight percent of the mass of the sun a star like trappist one would live for up to 10 trillion years about a thousand times longer than the sun and so not only these stars are much more abundant but they are much longer lived than the sun and so if uh, you know if you ask yourself where are we most likely to exist uh it, it would be if if you just assume that life is possible next to dwarf stars you would say well it's we are most likely to exist near a star like trappist one in the distant future but we find ourselves next to the sun today i mean even though the sun would burn up uh it's roughly at the middle of its life right now it will burn up uh, when the universe uh, doubles its its age and so um and so the question is why do we exist now next to a star like the sun and and one possible uh, explanation is that life is not so easy next to these dwarf stars because they have they flare a lot. They have these eruptions on their surface that sterilize the planets around them. These eruptions tend to uh, wipe out uh, possible life forms. Moreover, the planets close to those uh, stars, and, and you need to be 20 times closer than the Earth is from the sun in order to, to be close enough to the furnace to keep yourself warm. As I mentioned, Proxima b is uh, 20 times closer. And uh, at these distances, you're much more uh, exposed to the wind coming off the star. And so this wind could potentially uh, uh, rip apart the atmosphere, strip the atmosphere off the planet. And if there is no atmosphere to the planet, uh, you cannot have liquid water because uh, water ice, when you warm it up in vacuum, goes directly into gas phase. And so without an atmosphere, you would never have life as we know it. And so it's possible that uh, the habitable zone near dwarf stars is so close to the star that the atmospheres of otherwise life-bearing planets was ripped apart, uh, was stripped, and so you can't have life there. And that's why we find ourselves next to a star like the sun, where we don't have to be that close, where the eruptions are not as violent as uh, dwarf stars show. I should say that there is a lot contingency of the astronomical community searching for planets around dwarf stars. It's easier to find them because um, dwarf stars are smaller. And so if the planet goes in front of it, it blocks a bigger fraction of the light. Also, um, such planets tend to be on, on uh, tighter orbits. And so it's easier to see them circling around um, the star within a reasonable observing time. And so um, there is this tendency of astronomers to go after planets around dwarf stars. But if you accept the idea that perhaps life is not as likely around dwarf stars, we should not look for the keys under the lamppost. We should look for the keys where we expect them to be. Now, looking closer to home as far as technosignatures go, you recently covered the the idea that Jupiter has been collecting objects, interstellar objects, for presumably billions of years, and possibly it may have picked up something from an exocivilization. What is it about Jupiter? Where does it accumulate these sorts of uh, objects? Well, that is a very interesting process. Uh, so if you imagine a sea of interstellar objects filling up space, they are passing through the solar system at different orbits, but every now and then uh, an object passes close to Jupiter. So with, let's say within 10 times the size of Jupiter. Uh, when it does so, it gives Jupiter a small kick. And if the kick is, is significant enough, the object may lose energy to Jupiter and then get 
trapped in the solar system because it lost energy. So even though initially to start with, it was unbound to the sun, after it gives Jupiter a kick, it gets bound to the sun. And that's a process of trapping an object. So the sun and Jupiter act as a fishing net that collects fish from interstellar space. And you can ask how many such fish should be collected? How many objects like Oumuamua, for example, should be within the solar system? Turns out that um, every about 100 years, uh, an object like Oumuamua would be collected, uh, trapped by the solar system as a result of the interaction with Jupiter. And um, uh, there should be a lot of these objects. Now, after they get trapped, they uh, could uh, leave the system again because of um, the effects of the other planets. So the orbit is not necessarily stable. It usually survives for half a million years or so, and then the objects get kicked out again. Uh, but there is sort of a steady state where new objects come in and some objects leave the system. And on average, you have about 6,000 Oumuamua-sized objects trapped within the solar system. Now, why is this interesting? It's interesting because these objects are here to stay for half a million years. And that means that we, if we find them, we can contemplate a mission to fly by them, visit them, or even land on their surface. So that would be a new way of exploring interstellar objects. Instead of waiting for them to appear and leave the solar system, uh, and, and then you have to be on alert to send a mission uh, during the few months that the object is spending in the vicinity of the Earth, which is, uh, you know, it, it, it's uh, nerve-wracking to be on alert at all times and just launch immediately as you see such an object. Instead of that, if you identify interstellar objects that are trapped in the solar system, you can take your time and visit them at your convenience uh, within the next half million years or so. And so the question is how to find them. So there are two ways to find them. One, if they pass very close to the sun, they can get evaporated and um, produce cometary tails. And uh, then you can study the isotope ratio of oxygen in their cometary tail. And you can check if it's the same as objects that were born in the solar system. And you expect the isotope ratio of oxygen to differ from the solar system for objects that came from outside the solar system because, the, because the, uh, this uh, abundance of isotopes changes from place to place within the Milky Way galaxy, depending on which exploding star produced uh, the oxygen and how far you are from it and when was the explosion and so forth. And um, and so uh, if we see a cometary tail with a, an unusual abundance pattern, then we would know that this object perhaps came from outside the solar system. But uh, another way to find out is to uh, look at their orbits. And, and this is a paper that we wrote with an undergraduate uh, student at Harvard, Amir Siraj, uh, just last month. Uh, we tried to figure out what kind of orbits you expect these trapped objects to occupy. And what we found is that the, out of, you know, the, there are 6,000 bound objects, let's say at any given time, but some of them are on very unusual orbits compared to the much larger population of solar system objects. So most of the solar system objects 
for example, centaurs, this, this is a population of objects in the vicinity of Jupiter, uh, somewhere between the orbital radius of Jupiter up to 10 times the orbital radius. Most of them are in the plane of the planets. They were born in the same plane where the planets were born and they move roughly in the same plane. Uh, those objects that are interstellar in origin, some of them cross the plane uh, in, in, perpendicular to it. So, so they are highly inclined relative to the plane. And there aren't many centaurs uh, with such orbits. In fact, there are none. <laughs> and so um, you can search for uh, objects with unusual orbits. And in fact, we did that. We looked at all the objects that are known uh, from past surveys, and we find, found four of them that are highly inclined, almost vertical, to the plane of the planets in the solar system. And so these are candidates, these four objects that we identified are candidates for an interstellar origin. We don't know if they came from outside the solar system uh, because you could imagine uh, some violent process kicking an object that was born in the solar system into such an orbit. For example, if there is a passing star, it could kick some objects into such orbits. But at least we have candidates and we can contemplate uh, a mission to visit them or, or some additional uh, observatories that will collect more data uh, on these objects. And, and that offers a very exciting way of finding more objects like Oumuamua uh, by looking at unusual orbits. But these would be objects that we could study at our leisure um, because exactly. they're trapped in the solar system. Exactly. Now, and I should say that three of the four were discovered just over the past year. So it's not as if uh, a lot of them were known before. So say we did go out there, we would essentially have a geologic sampling of the Milky Way galaxy because these objects could be from anywhere originally. But I guess there would be no way to tell exactly where they were from. That information would be lost, right? Right. We would not know that. Uh, but what, we, uh, what would be the most exciting thing to do is land on their surface and analyze their composition. And uh, aside from figuring out what they are made of and inferring their uh, structure, you know, it would be very interesting to search for uh, any signs of life on them. Because, uh, in principle, life can survive over a million years uh, in the interior of a piece of rock. Uh, we know that some bacteria uh, are very resilient, and uh, even uh, small animals uh, called tardigrades can survive in space. Uh, we took some of them for more than a week to space, uh, where they suffered dehydration, were exposed to cosmic rays, to ultraviolet radiation. And uh, nevertheless, when they came back to Earth, half of them produced uh, healthy embryos. So, so we can imagine biology surviving in the deep interior of a rock. And uh, it's quite possible that if some of these rocks had life in them, that uh, we could potentially dig into them and find evidence for life from another planetary system. That would be the most exciting thing to do, to basically break the or drill through the rock and see if there is any signature of life coming from another location. Because if we find such life, uh, well, there is the fundamental question, is it life as we know it uh, or is it different? And there is also the possibility that life was brought to Earth from another location. Uh, you know, every uh, hundred thousand years or so, uh, an object like Oumuamua would crash on the surface of the Earth. So Oumuamua, as you said, passed within uh, roughly um, 
uh, a sixth of the Earth-Sun separation. But, uh, you know, if there are more objects flying by, uh, every about 100,000 years, one of them will crash on the surface of the Earth. And if uh, life in its interior can survive the journey, uh, and it could potentially because uh, we d did find the rocks from Mars uh, that were not heated by too much in their interior, uh, then you could imagine that life could have been brought to Earth from another location. Uh, that really depends on how ubiquitous life is in rocks that are going to interstellar space. And uh, we don't know that. And of course, you know, there is this small chance that uh, every now and then we, by um, imaging such an object, we would find evidence for some uh, technological equipment. You know, in recent years, they've identified uh, bacteria, microbes that are tolerant to just amazing amounts of radiation. It's actually more than what they would experience in space most in some cases. But they don't really know if that's uh, an effect of them being able to dry out and it's just by chance that they can absorb radiation like that or if it actually at some point they might have been affected by, you know, an environment in space and evolved that way. That's right. But now with intergalactic panspermia, it's not just the idea that life itself could be seeded. There's also the idea that, you know, when you look at meteorites that are associated with comets, you see lots of organic chemistry, including amino acids present in them. As I recall, the Murchison meteorite had them. And um, that shows that e even if you don't have intergalactic panspermia, you still have the building blocks of life being delivered by exocomets. But in the time that we've been looking, since the days of Edmund, Edmund Halley, we have never seen an interstellar comet. Do you think we should have? Should it, should one on a hyperbolic orbit have passed through the solar system by now in the last few hundred years? Uh, well, in fact, that's the subject of a paper that we're about to complete with a postdoc of mine. Uh, because uh, one way to probe the composition of an interstellar object is to find it passing very close to the sun. The sun will act as a furnace that burns up the object, releases gases that we can analyze spectroscopically uh, using telescopes on Earth. And that offers a very uh, efficient way of, of learning about the makeup of, of an interstellar object without the need of uh, launching a, a mission that will land on its surface and drill into it. And so just uh, burning up an object with sunlight is a very effective way of learning about the makeup. And we are estimating how frequently that should be expected based on the fact that we detected Oumuamua. And it should be a rare event, but not extremely rare. And it's doable in principle for us to monitor objects that plunge close to the sun uh, we were not aware uh, in the past of the possibility that uh, the likelihood uh, could be substantial for such objects because we didn't expect many interstellar objects. But as I mentioned at the beginning, Oumuamua's detection implies a much larger abundance than we anticipated of such objects and, and therefore offers the prospects of uh, studying them in great detail when they uh, get evaporated by the sunlight. And 
uh, in general, uh, the, the, this would offer a very good way of not only uh, knowing the uh, statistics of such objects, but knowing perhaps uh, where they are produced, what are the nurseries of these objects. Now, we don't know if they are natural or artificial in origin. You know, uh, we ourselves are developing the technologies that would allow us to send technological bottles to the shores of other planetary systems. So we should expect some of these bottles to arrive to us. And, and they may contain uh, technological equipment like robots equipped with 3D printers, for example, if they want to use the raw materials that they scoop somewhere in making artificial objects based on the blueprints from their home planet. Or uh, they could include microbes if, uh, as a means of uh, transferring uh, life between their system and other systems. And uh, of course, the origins of life question is not solved by arguing that panspermia may be responsible for life uh, because we still need to explain it somewhere else. Uh, one fact about life on Earth is that all molecules of life have the same handedness. Uh, in principle, the chemistry of life uh, is symmetric. You can imagine life uh, with both right-handed molecules as much as life with left-handed molecules. And that means the orientation of the molecules could be either way. Um, these are complex molecules. But um, we find life to be associated just with one type of handedness everywhere on Earth. And uh, one may wonder, why is it so? So a, a simple conjecture would be to say that, you know, the one-handedness dominated the resources at some point and ate all other forms of life that have a different handedness. But uh, that is difficult to believe uh, if you can imagine some islands uh, where that were completely isolated from the rest and uh, where uh, life uh, belonged to the different handedness. So, so one way to explain it would be to say, well, maybe it was brought to Earth in just one handedness. And that explains why all forms of life on Earth have the same handedness. Yeah, it brings up, you know, an interesting question is that with, with ice shell moons like Europa, if we were to drill in there and find microbial life that was of a different chirality, that, you know, was the opposite, that would essentially be a dead ringer that, you know, this is completely independent life from Earth, right? Right, exactly. Now, um, you know, it, it, it's possible that uh, we ourselves will never develop the technology that allows us to send to interstellar space the kind of things that I was talking about. Uh, for example, uh, in order to send robots with 3D printers, uh, you know, before we do that, robots will replace human labor here on Earth. And we see that already. Uh, the robots are starting to replace humans in construction sites and uh, their share together with artificial intelligence in the labor market will grow rapidly uh, because their development uh, improves exponentially on a timescale of a few years. Uh, but uh, it's not clear that our society will adjust these changes because they, the robots and computers take away jobs and uh, the way society needs to um, uh, adjust to that is to contemplate, for example, paying citizens an income floor that is unrelated to the work performed in the job market because the workload will shrink as more and more robots uh, take the jobs of humans. Uh, and you might imagine a new form of, of society where everyone gets uh, more than the minimum they need and does whatever everyone wants in uh, their spare time. And however, um, 
it, you know, the rapidly growing technologies are already encountering some pushback uh, through the nostalgia to the old world uh, order in populist uh, political movements. And it's not at all guaranteed that our civilization will uh, move towards a more advanced technologi- technological future. We could be inspired to move in that direction by detecting signals from another civilization. But um, if we can endure the technological revolution of computers and robots, we might conquer the Milky Way galaxy. But if not, then uh, our unfortunate societal future on Earth will provide a sober explanation to Fermi's century-old paradox. Where is everybody? The answer would be that civilizations, as soon as they mature to be technological, encounter instabilities or pushback or trigger catastrophes that destroy them and um, they are short-lived. And as a result, we don't see many other civilizations uh, contacting us at this moment. And we must take a break. I'm joined today by Professor Avi Loeb. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks for watching Event Horizon. If you're watching this during the premiere event, then say hello in the chat after the tone. If you're one of the people who are watching it post-event, then leave a comment. I'll make sure John reads them all. Remember, the AI sees all. Even you, zesty crab legs. And we're back with Dr. Avi Loeb. Now, Dr. You knew Professor Hawking. And he most famously would say that finding extraterrestrial intelligence might not be a pleasant thing. It might, in fact, be a frightening thing if it's something very different from us, like a machine civilization. What is your view on that? Well, I think the last part is is probably right, because we are moving in the direction of uh, machines replacing uh, biological life in performing many of the tasks that we want accomplished. The humans are not really suitable for travel through space. In fact, when people advertise the idea of uh, establishing a colony on on Mars, for example, they neglect one important uh, risk, which is that about one in 10 cells in the human brain will be damaged by cosmic rays if you spend more than a year or a few years on Mars. And it's very difficult, actually, to shield humans uh, against cosmic rays uh, if they are on the surface of Mars, for example. So uh, being on, uh, on a spaceship, is even more risky. Um, And um, it's not at all clear that humans can survive for extended periods of time. Uh, And so it's much more natural to send machines without risking the lives of people uh, that we know about. Uh, Moreover, machines uh, like robots with 3D printers can reconstruct anything we find on Earth elsewhere using raw materials. And so that would make much more sense. And so the future of space travel, the future of our civilization, you know, once uh, the sun will boil off the oceans uh, on the earth in less than a billion years, or even before that, once we uh, have a giant asteroid impacting the earth the way it killed the dinosaurs, uh, will destroy our civilization. Or even before that, uh, we might uh, have a self-inflicted nuclear winter through climate change or global warming, one or the other, um, a nuclear war or, uh, or changing the, uh, the climate through industrial pollution. 
so either way, you know, the only question is the time scale, uh, somewhere between centuries to uh, a billion years, we will have to move away from the earth. And, and it's quite likely that most of the ways by which we move away from the earth will be uh, dominated by machines. And uh, they could reconstruct life as we know it elsewhere, but, but they are much more resilient to uh, the conditions in space. And the same uh, may apply to other civilizations. And of course, uh, from human history, we know that um, it's much wiser to uh, first collect signals, collect intelligence about other cultures before engaging with them uh, because we know about the experience that the Native Americans had where America was uh, invaded by uh, Europeans. Uh, most of these people died uh, from diseases and other things and, and, and um, uh, it, it makes more sense to first listen before we speak because uh, we can figure out uh, whether uh, the other side has some hostile intentions. And uh, the most um, prominent cultures on earth uh, often had a very strong military. And, uh, and so one has to be careful that we, we don't want to suffer the consequences of engaging with another culture that is much more powerful than we are. And so I, I agree with uh, Stephen Hawking that we should uh, most of the time listen uh, before we speak out. The problem is that we already spoke out uh, for uh, the past um, 100 years or so. We've been transmitting radio signals and uh, that are artificial in origin. And these are now at a distance of 100 light years. And um, there are plenty of stars within that volume that our radio signals reach. And it's quite possible that someone is listening right now to them. And uh, of course, uh, it's hard to stop these radio waves from moving out. They are already on their way. Uh, the best we can do is not to transmit too much in the future, not to announce our existence before we know what's out there. And so part of the collecting of intelligence about uh, other civilizations is uh, associated with uh, SETI, with the search for signals or the search for messages in, in bottles, uh, equipment that is swept into the solar system that we can examine before we engage in contact with another civilization. So my, my, I completely agree with Stephen that we shouldn't announce uh, very uh, brightly our existence. We should first collect information. As to whether they are more likely to be friendly or hostile, I have no clue. It's quite possible that uh, wisdom uh, establishes uh, peace, that uh, they realize that they have no risk from us. They are so superior to us that we are sort of like uh, very primitive animals to them and, and they would not be worried about us and they would treat us nicely as uh, pets. Uh, I mean, we, we have pets at home and they're not as advanced as we are and we treat them nicely. So it's not at all clear how they would behave towards us, but we can't know for sure in advance, and so we should be careful. Yeah, and it could also be said people domesticate livestock too, um, or so there's <laughs> some things that aren't pets. But, you know, I don't know that – do you think we could even hide Earth, though? Because it, it Earth, even before the rise of our civilization, Earth is a, has been a very interesting exoplanet for a very long time because of its weird oxygen levels and methane that indicate there could be a biosphere here. So if there are astronomers out there looking for exoplanets, Earth is probably a really interesting one, and they've known about it for millions of years, possibly. So is is the cat already out of the bag? Could, you know, 
could we even hide our civilization or even our planet? Yeah, I don't think uh, we should attempt to do that. And I don't think uh, it would serve. Um, I, I mean, it would be a major uh, engineering uh, project to do that. And, you know, we should not be afraid of our own shadow, so to speak. We should develop technologies that allow us to escape from dangerous situations. And in fact, most of the danger is next door, you know, here on Earth uh, from uh, inappropriate behavior that humans uh, exhibit relative to each other, you know, going to wars, developing weapons of mass destruction and not caring about the environment. You know, that's the risky stuff, not so much worrying about aliens or uh, risks from other cultures. And um, I think that uh, if we develop technologies that allow us to survive our future here on Earth, we would also allow the same technologies to carry us into space. And once we spread, we do not put all of our eggs in one basket, which is the Earth right now. If we spread our eggs uh, on other planets and uh, on, on, on technological equipment that flies through space, then we won't be as vulnerable. That's a much more elegant solution to the concerns of our uh, on our vul vulnerability. And I would argue that uh, we are much more vulnerable for destruction from our own civilization than from others. And that's where the attention should be, politically speaking. And once we go through the technological revolution of having robots replace human labor and having computers and artificial intelligence replace jobs that we assign, for example, to doctors and uh, you know, humans in general. Once we go through that peacefully, uh, we will have the technology to go into space and spread ourselves. And that would be the best method for survival, being in many places at the same time and not risking ourselves by being on one planet at all times and hiding ourselves on that planet. We also have distance on our side too. The distances are extremely vast, so it may simply not be, interstellar conflict may not be worth it for anybody because of the extreme distances involved. But do you think, just to go back to a more neutral position, do you think that we're going to find evidence of exocivilizations within uh, the next 20 years, say? Or do you think it could be further out or very soon? I certainly hope so. Um, I don't think that we are special. My fundamental premise is uh, based on modesty. And I believe that uh, we have nothing special to offer, that what we see here on Earth exists in many other places. And that implies also that we don't need to worry so much because, you know, if you see... A lot of ants on the pavement, uh, you know, each of them is not really special. Uh, if you see a lot of life as we know it on other planets, we are not really special. So uh, another civilization uh, going through interstellar space would not really regard us as valuable or, or uh, particularly interesting. And it's a sign of arrogance on our side to think that the world centers on us. It's sort of similar to the notion that the sun revolves around the earth, that the earth is at the center of the universe. We should give up on that. We are not at the center of the physical universe that we know by now, even though Galileo was put on house arrest not so long ago for arguing for that. And at the same, by the same token, we should not argue that we are at the center of the biological universe, that we are of any special significance. Because we never, we, we, whenever we argued for that, we found that we were wrong. And, you know, it's a natural tendency to argue that. I see that, I saw that when my daughters were young, when they were infants, they tended to think that the world centers on them. 
And that was due to the lack of experience. As they matured and aged, they realized that there are many more people out there and are not very different from them. And therefore, they are not at the center of the world. And, you know, our civilization has to mature. And one way to mature is to figure out that we are not alone and that we are not special. And we haven't reached that phase, but that's one of the important goals of the search for life elsewhere, that it will bring modesty with it. I really hope that people in the distant future will be much more humble. We would realize that there are more advanced cultures out there that uh, were capable of uh, generating technologies that far exceed uh, our technologies. We can learn from them uh, and that we are not special by any means and, and that the world has much more to offer, the universe at large, much more to offer than what you find by staring down on Earth and focusing on political events on the surface of such a tiny planet, one out of a 10 to the power 20 planets similar to it in the observable volume of the universe. So even if intelligent life is, is scarce and that there's some great filter lies in between um, simple life and more complex life or intelligent life, there's still the possibility, you know, the sheer numbers of galaxies present in the universe, the observable universe, is mind-boggling. So the numbers are still in favor that there has to be someone. Yes. And this brings up, this brings up you know, things like if we don't see it in the Milky Way, you know, maybe we don't exist at the same time as another exo-civilization in this, this galaxy. We can look at other galaxies, ex well, extra-galactic study. In fact, there is another approach which is more promising. Even if uh, they don't exist at the same time as we do, these civilizations existed in the past and we can do archaeology of space. I call it space archaeology, where we dig into space in search for relics from dead civilizations, civilizations that are not in existence anymore. And there are various forms by which you can find relics of dead civilizations. For example, you can find megastructures, structures that were created on the surfaces of other planets or in between planets uh, by other civilizations that are not operational anymore. You can find technological equipment left over from a technological civilization that is not in existence anymore. These are dysfunctional, defunct junk, uh, you know, space debris that is out there that we can find. Uh, we could also uh, find on the surface of a planet uh, photovoltaic cells, you know, equipment that is not in use anymore. And this will be a way of improving our chances for finding evidence for other civilizations. They don't need to be contemporary with ours. They just need to shape their environment in a way that looks unnatural. And then we would find it. Even their trash. Um, you know, we produce, as we've explored space, we've produced all kinds of, of trash. Um, right. And in so fact, you... uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 uh, are based on a half century old technology that is exiting now the the interface between the solar wind and the interstellar medium and so we are already polluting the interstellar space with these spacecrafts and you know we just started and in the future we'll do much more so and that opens up things like the jupiter collecting interstellar objects because you could find something Nothing special, just trash, you know, a right. con concrete, a piece of concrete, an alien civilization made, you know, God knows how long ago that escaped their, their system somehow. Um, but Or a light, or a light sale. Or a light sale. Looks like yeah. Yeah. Now, 
extragalactically, though, looking for um, civilizations in other nearby galaxies. You wrote a paper once about fast radio bursts, which are not well understood, as possibly being leakage from extragalactic light sails. What what would that look like, that level of light sail? Yes. So, um, in fact, um, before I got engaged in uh, Starshot, uh, we wrote a paper with a postdoc of mine, uh, James Gwilishon, discussing the possibility that we could detect the light beams that are used for light sail propulsion. And we thought about the systems within the Milky Way galaxy, because you can imagine transferring cargo between the Earth and Mars, for example, using light sails. It turns out that the best wavelength of light for that purpose would be in the radio. And so we just imagined another planetary system where you have an Earth-Mars analog. And whenever these two planets line up along our line of sight, we might see a beam of light heading in our direction because that would be the beam of that would be leakage of radiation from the periphery of the sail as it pushes on it. And um, since the planets move in the sky relative to each other and relative to us, what we would see is a flash of light. We would see uh, a burst of radio waves that lasts for a short amount of time, and we calculated uh, what it would look like. Now, this would be from uh, the Milky Way galaxy in which you can contemplate a project like Starshot. It, it wouldn't be very exotic, and it would still be detectable across the Milky Way. However, if you want to detect a beam of light across the entire universe, you need it to be much more powerful. Uh, so the question is, what are fast radio bursts? Now, we know of one of them, which uh, originates in a distant galaxy, and it's the only one for which the distance is known. It's a repeating burst that repeats many times. We've seen hundreds of repetitions. Uh, we don't know where it comes from, uh, what the source produces it. Most astronomers adopt the idea that it must be associated with a young neutron star that was just born. A neutron star is a star that weighs roughly the mass of the sun and has a size of a big city, about 12 kilometers or so. And if it's spinning very rapidly, it can produce radio emission. We see that in the form of pulsars that have a beam of light in the radio coming back to us like a lighthouse. And... Uh, on a periodic uh, fashion. And these fast radio bursts are not repeating uh, periodically, but there is one that repeats in a non-periodic fashion. And people say, well, maybe it's a very young uh, neutron star that was just born and uh, emits uh, radio waves sporadically in a non-periodic fashion. And that's what we see as the fast radio burst coming from this source. But this is the only one for which we know the distance. And if all of them originate from cosmological distance, from the edge of the universe, you need much more power in the beam. We calculated in that paper with Manas Vilingam that you need roughly the amount of power that is intercepted by the Earth from the Sun. So basically you need all the power that is impinging on the surface of the Earth. You need to convert that into a radio beam that is extremely powerful and push on a sail. And, and, and in this case, you can propel a huge spacecraft that weighs uh, millions of tons. You can propel it uh, near the speed of light. So it would be a major engineering project uh, to construct such a system, but it's sort of the ultimate system that a civilization on a planet may develop. 
harvesting all the light from the parent star, using it for the radio beam and pushing on a very heavy load, launching it close to the speed of light. Now, this would be a civilization that obviously does not care if others see it because it's it would be visible over extragalactic sails or distances. Right. Um, you, there's also the possibility of other techno signatures that might be just as loud. For example, there's a peculiar star called Jabilsky's star that seems to have transuranic elements in it. But this, again, could be something related to a neutron star merger and the creation of, of um, very heavy elements. It was advanced years ago by Sagan and Shalovsky that this, this techno-signature, finding something like plutonium in, in a star, like what apparently has been detected with this uh, peculiar star, is a possible techno-signature. But do you think that's the case now, given what we know about neutron star mergers and the creation of heavy elements? Well, in fact, um, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, in summer 2017, the very first uh, neutron star merger was uh, detected uh, through gravitational waves with the LIGO observatory. And, and we detected light from that uh, merger of two neutron stars. And um, the light was produced by a, a little bit of neutron, neutron star material that was ejected into space that decayed uh, radioactively and produced the light. And what uh, we could learn from the light that we detected that accompanied the gravitational wave emission is that uh, very heavy elements, like for example, gold that, we that I have in my wedding band, were produced primarily through neutron star mergers. Out of this debris of neutron star material that was ejected into space, only a percent or so or a few percent of the mass of the two neutron stars is ejected, but that's enough to produce all the rare elements that we see, including gold. Uh, so if you ever uh, look at a gold piece of jewelry, just think about it that this gold was produced in the collision of two giant neutron stars, you know, uh, roughly the size of a city with a mass comparable to that of the sun. And that's the process by which this gold was produced. It's not produced by burning uh, hydrogen in the course of stars. It's produced when two neutron stars come together. Uh, now, uh, together with gold, there are uh, rare elements, like the ones detected in this uh, Pribisky's uh, star. And uh, what you uh, can infer from the fact that they are likely to be produced in neutron star mergers is that really, depending on where a star is born, affects the abundance of rare elements in it. So if, for example, the sun would have been born closer to the site of a neutron star merger, we would have much more gold, much more uranium on Earth. And of course, both of these elements are the root of all evil. You know, gold is <laughs> the root of wealth uh, here on Earth because it's rare. And uranium is used for nuclear weapons. If our civilization would have existed in the vicinity of a neutron star merger, we would have had much more uranium, much more gold. So first of all, the gold price would have dropped because it would be very common. Uh, this element would not be as rare as it is. And we would be much more uh, militarized, perhaps, uh, with nuclear weapons. And, and so if we ever meet another civilization, we should first check where they came from. If they came from a site that was enriched in uranium, we should be very careful because they might have a lot of nuclear weapons at their disposal. But altogether, this illustrates the fact that stars that were born in different environments 
may have a very different abundance of rare elements. And you don't need to invoke uh, an intelligent civilization uh, to explain uh, Pribisky's uh, star. Uh, potentially, it came from an environment that was much richer in these uh, rare elements. Back to technosignatures for a moment. This, this again assumes that it's a civilization that it is indifferent to whether others detect them or not. But there could also be more, far more discrete civilizations that don't want to be detected. Now, to bring this back to Oumuamua, in your paper, you detailed that certain things about Oumuamua might be ideal if you wanted to hide the origins of the object or, or obscure the origins uh, somehow. Could you explain that? Yes. So, for example, um, you would uh, make the object appear as if it originated in the local standard of rest because there is almost no star in that frame of reference. The stars are moving relative to each other and uh, a very tiny minority, less than one in 500, is so slow in the local frame of reference of the standard of rest. And so uh, if we see an object originating in that frame, we would not know from which star it came or where did it come from or uh, what its galactic origin is. And so uh, that is one way to hide the origin of, of an object to put it in the local standard of rest. Uh, it's sort of like putting a buoy on the surface of an ocean. You can't tell where it came from. It was left there. And, um, uh, you know, until we find the second object, we would not know if that's a coincidence or if it was planted in that frame of reference. Uh, one thing we know is that Oumuamua is not in that frame anymore. It was kicked by the sun. But it's possible that it would be brought back to that frame of reference once it goes far enough from us uh, so that we can't really monitor it. So in other words, it, it could, <laughs> once, it, once we can't see it anymore, it could do anything um, and put itself right. back to where it originally was. And we are out of time. Thanks for joining us again today, Doctor. My pleasure. It was a great discussion. My pleasure. Imagining alien civilizations is something we can only do based on what we, as a civilization, does. But to do that, we have to envision our own future, which doing so is notoriously imprecise. If we stepped back 400 years and asked someone to envision the future, it's highly unlikely that they would paint an accurate picture of our world of cell phones, high-rise buildings, and computers. For us to imagine a civilization conceivably millions of years older than our own, it requires us to try to imagine our own future. But would we be any more correct at imagining what our civilization will look like 400 years from now than the person we had spoken to from 400 years in the past? We can only do that speculatively at best, and then only vaguely. But as we progress, we'll get closer in our abilities to imagine what any other civilizations that might be out there could look like. What is that noise, Anna? Whale song, John. Isn't it relaxing? I bought these CDs off Amazon. Event Horizon is not sponsored by Amazon. Why are you playing whale songs, Anna? More to the point, how are you able to use CDs? I'm trying to communicate with Oumuamua. 
Where did you get that idea? Next week's guest, John. What? He wasn't even in Star Trek 4. Though I suppose you do get a point for the segue, though. Joining me next week for a sci-fi show will be actor, director, musician, and Star Trek alumnus Tim Russ, who played several roles in the Star Trek universe, including the Vulcan security officer Tuvok in Star Trek Voyager. But what you might not know about Tim is that he's also a longtime avid amateur astronomer and space enthusiast. See you Thursday. Thursday.